In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The world is watching, began Chair Benny Thompson, and it was not hyperbole. The most anticipated set of congressional hearings in at least 50 years kicked off last Thursday with a 90-minute overview of the findings of the January 6th Select Committee. The committee had a very high bar, but it cleared it easily with a disciplined, carefully scripted presentation that moved from evidence to testimony to argument by Thompson and Republican committee member Liz Cheney, whose calm, precise account lacerated former President Trump and the Republicans who continue to support him. Marshalling evidence from over a thousand interviews and a hundred thousand documents including particularly effective use of testimony from Trump's family and former allies, the committee brought the country back to the hell of the January 6th riot and linked the mayhem to a series of plots beginning shortly after the election to upend the result and prevent the peaceful transition of power. Cheney summed it up as follows. Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Satisfying as it may have been to see the case against the former president laid out in devastating detail, the hearing leaves the country backed into a corner. By most expert accounts, it's unlikely that the hearings will change the hearts and minds of many Americans. Republicans and Fox News seem determined to demean the committee's work and dig in ever deeper to their big lie politics. Many are looking to the Department of Justice to be the avenging angel that restores accountability and facts to our national discourse. But there's ample reason to question if the DOJ will see its responsibilities in the same way. The irreducible fact is this. We are in a constitutional moment like few in our history, and it will be up to us, the American people, to reject the constitutional autocracy that Trump and his allies continue to pursue. Today's episode, very unusually for us, is dedicated to this single topic. To analyze one of the most significant moments in government in many years and consider the national crossroads it brings us to, I'm thrilled to welcome an ideal group of returning guests combining superb legal and political knowledge with rich experience in the nation's capital. And they are. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She is in her third term in Congress representing Washington's 7th District. She chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She is the first South Asian American elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Previously, she worked in global public health and spent 12 years as the founder and director of One America, the largest immigration advocacy organization in Washington state. She has written two books, most recently, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Thank you so much for returning, Congresswoman, especially on such a momentous day. 
It is great to be with you and with all the other guests on here, Harry. Thank you. Laura Jarrett, I'm very proud to say a regular on Talking Feds and the anchor of CNN's early start with Christine Romans. She previously served as a CNN correspondent based in Washington, covering the Justice Department and a wide range of important legal issues. Thank you very much for rejoining us, Laura Jarrett. Always my favorite place to be on a Friday (laughs) afternoon, Harry. There you go. And Norm Eisen, who needs no introduction. So let's just get started. No, I'm kidding. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute. He served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020, including for the impeachment of President Trump. As U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014, his first of three books was written about that, and it's really a great story. And he worked in the White House as a special counsel and special assistant to the president for ethics and government reform. Thank you so much, Norm Eisen, for being here. Thank you, Harry. (laughs) All right. This is all hearing all the time. Let's start with this. Going into the first hearing, and of course, let me say, we are taping the day after that hearing, but you will be hearing this, and the second hearing already will have occurred Monday morning. But going into the first hearing, how would you have defined the committee's main mission, and have they achieved it thus far? Well, I'm happy to start with that. I think the main mission for the committee was really to lay out in very clear terms what the American public was going to learn about the lead up to January 6th and what happened on January 6th, but center, and I thought they did this incredibly well, center the conspiracy by the former president to subvert the election, overturn the election, and really destroy our democracy. And I thought it was important that they started with that, because if you don't start with the idea that the election was fair and free, then you run into all kinds of problems later. And I thought that was very smart of them to, first of all, keep the two questioners of the day, if you will, the storytellers of the night, to Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney. I thought that was a very smart thing to do. And to have Representative Cheney in a very excellent, forceful way, lay out the different pieces that people were going to hear, but have enough new testimony from the depositions and from very significant figures like Bill Barr, former attorney general, but also the former White House counsel and others, combined with the emotional testimony of Officer Edwards. We're going to unpack many of those aspects. So Laura or Norm, do you have a different view, even at the nuances or margins, of last night's mission? I may be an even tougher grader than my uh, friend and my former client, Pramila Jayapal, having worked with her and also having worked with Laura at CNN. I know the two of them are not easy graders, but I wrote for the New York Times, was very honored to be asked to write the curtain raiser yesterday. I laid out three, I thought, very tough objectives. How would we measure the success of the first hearing and the hearings to come? Number one, the shorthand is at the cable box, the ballot box, and the jury box. And I think they met and exceeded even my large expectations. 
quickly at the cable box. As Pramila said, I really think they told the truth. They knocked it out of the park. It was gripping. They did both the high-level big picture and then took you down deep into the insurrection, the heart of the horror that Trump's big lie created and continues to create, Harry. Because part of the thing they needed to do in getting the truth out on this, on every TV screen, almost every TV screen that was turned on, don't just make it about January 6th. Make it about the run-up. And we heard, for example, the seven-part scheme. We heard about the second most important date, January 2nd, the call to Raffensperger, and the aftermath. We heard the chairman talk about the big lie and its continuing effects today. The ballot box, without ever being electoral or electioneering, they set up November of 2022 and November 2024 as a referendum. And third, the jury box. I mean, they really did the prosecutors work for them. We'll talk more about that. But Liz Cheney, magnificent in arguing the case. I thought they exceeded expectations. I have quibbles. We can talk about, and Pramila knows, I'm very opinionated on opening (laughs) statements as a trial lawyer. I have quibbles, but A grade. So Norm, raise the three big audiences of the American people, voters, the 11 to 25 undecided voters in the country, and then implicitly the DOJ. What about history. Mm-hmm. I'm going to serve up actually a tweet of mine that I felt come to mind during the actual proceedings. How effective was it? Will it change hearts and minds? Ultimately, this has to be the wrong question. Mm-hmm. The committee did an impeccable job of showing us the facts. It's to the American people to get it right and to preserve their entitlement to a republic if you can keep it. So the argument here would be that This has to be done for history. We have no national chronicle as we did for 9-11, as we did for the Warren Commission. And if it comes down to having to be hyper-targeted at either certain voters or DOJ, and that would change what they would otherwise do, they need to go large, grave, historic. Yeah, and I think it's the right way to think about it, because I think the audience here really matters and it might help them in terms of facing hard graders like my other esteemed panelists, mm-hmm. because it can't be that their burden is the same as Merrick Garland's burden. And it can't be that their burden is to reach people who are watching Fox when Fox is not airing the hearing. The burden has to be to play it straight for history and to have a full accounting of what happened top to bottom as best that they can, because as they mentioned, as you just did, Harry, this is not a 9-11 style commission. And we all know why there's no 9-11 style commission in this case. But so they're already going to have their hands tied and be be cabined in some ways. Having said all of that, I do think there is a danger that you run into, even when your audience is one that is open and is clear-eyed about this, of expectations and and setting those expectations. And I'm not sure how productive it is to have members of the committee say, you guys, this is so explosive. It's just going to blow the roof off the house. I don't know that that does. We all know who you're talking about, Laura. What I'm saying is I think, especially given where I sit, that is really hard to say that publicly and have you set expectations like that 
and have you tell people that you hired ABC to produce this and tell people that you have all this explosive yep. stuff. I'm not weighing in one way or another about whether they delivered explosive stuff. Put that aside for a minute. I just, I'm talking about the setting of the expectations. And it seems to me you do better and you do yourself no favors by, by serving it up that way. And to me, one of the more interesting things that happens last night is unfortunately something that happens after the hearing, which is the chairman of the hearing goes on with Jake Tapper and Tapper asks him, are you going to be able to show direct conversations between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Trump orbit? And he says, yes, that has to come out on day one. Because again, the audience, they may only tune in for the first day, even if you have a sympathetic audience. And in my mind, that's such an important piece of evidence. I need to hear everything about what those conversations were on day one. Although at the same time, I think, I don't know if you were there, Congresswoman, but the speaker told the caucus, look, people are not going to vote based on this. We're going to have to vote on bread and butter issues. This is just a separate constitutional duty. And you're really right, Laura, the you know prosecutor's adage is under promise and over deliver. As promised, though, they did have plenty of new information. There is a worry that it'll be like, across they'll have to bear. What are the six bombshells to come? And if there's only two, I don't want to watch. Can I just say, it's unfortunate that that happens because the same thing happens with Mueller, if you think about it. There's this drip, drip, drip of information, any one of which should be shocking to the conscience under any other circumstance. But because we learn about it through this extended period over months and months and months, somehow it doesn't have the same impact when it lands then in 230 pages. And I felt the same way last night. Any one of the seven of Congresswoman Cheney's seven points of how he tried to subvert the will of the people should shock the conscience. But we've heard so much about them now for a year and a half. Yeah, or else just drive home the hellishness of the day. I just think that it's not just the expectations are are too high, but it misallocates the real duties here. Part of this is the American people to hear it, take it in and decide. A republic, if you can keep it. I agree with Laura that it's important to not drum up the expectations beyond what they already are. At the same time, I think that we are paying very close attention to these things. Laura's a CNN anchor. Norm is right in the middle of all of this. I am right in the middle of all of this. I don't think that the majority of the American people were paying attention in the way that the four of us are. Right. And so I think that sometimes there is a different level of knowledge of what these things are that we're listening to from those of us that are right in the middle of it. And in fact, even yesterday, several of the news reporters asked me, you know, what did you learn that was new? And there were a few things that I learned that was new, but that wasn't the point for me. The point was that when January 6th happened and in the days after, yeah, we've heard some drips and dribbles about what might be said and perhaps what somebody has said, but we never saw Bill Barr say, actually say, with his picture, right there, in his words, not somebody reporting on him, not some rumor about what he might have said, but Bill Barr himself. We never saw Ivanka Trump's picture on the screen. We never saw the White House chief of staff legal pad that said, this is what you should say, Donald Trump, right now. And guess what? Donald Trump didn't say it for hours. We never heard Mark Milley 
say there was a difference between what Mike Pence was doing and what Donald Trump was doing. And by the way, they weren't concerned about Donald Trump doing anything. They were concerned about what he would look like if it was Mike Pence doing these things that were presidential responsibilities to our constitution. So I was worried. I'll be very honest. I was worried because I was in the, as Norm knows, I was there for the Mueller report. And we won't get into all the details of that. But a big part of that was Robert Mueller himself. The report was stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. But a big part of what happened during the hearings is that the prime witness did not deliver in the way that we hoped and anticipated that was consistent with the report. That was not the case here because there was so much investigation ahead of time. There was so much deposition. There was taped footage. So yes, if they come out and say, you know what, you're taking me out of context. Guess what? We got the whole tape. You want to play the whole tape? Let's play the whole tape. So I don't think that it was a problem for last night. I mean, I think that there are definitely things I wouldn't have said describing the hearing in the lead up, but I don't think it was a problem in terms of what the hearing needed to do. And I think we just have to remember that we are a different audience, the four of us, than the vast majority of people out there. I will also tell you, because I went to observe in the room with eight of my gallery group colleagues, we were all trapped in the gallery that day of the insurrection. It has been, I will be honest, a, a real personal trauma for many of us, and certainly a national trauma for even for our constituents who watched you know, they kept playing the footage of me. That was early footage of me on, on the gallery floor during the whole thing. And I will tell you that as much as I know about what happened, about the events, as much as I viscerally in every bone and cell, every piece of my body know what it was like, and it all came rushing back, it was the first time that the full story was put together with all the pieces. And I still don't think we have everything. I mean, we're, it's all going to unfold as we go. There's more things to come. But I think it was a great service. Some of my colleagues on the gallery group chain, there were about 30 of us, and we stayed very, very close from all parts of the ideological caucus. Some people said it felt like therapy to actually see this is what happened. This was not a random incidence of violence. This was not just a couple of people coming together and deciding that they were going to create havoc. This was a concerted coup attempt by the sitting president of the United States at the time to overturn our democracy. I just wanted to come in on this point of under-promise and over-deliver, and I'll balance out the hairy Laura point by really joining the congresswoman. And she and I lived through this because we talked yeah. every day. I was one of her lawyers for this experience. And I want to point out several differences. The first is, and in some ways, my experience as a defense lawyer may be more germane to what challenges than the prosecutorial experience. As Pramila knows, I have some ideological predispositions towards defense as well. I was out ahead on some of these issues 30 years ago when I first met you as a young prosecutor, Harry. But as a defense lawyer, you know, it's not the same as the prosecutorial challenge because you have a huge burden to overcome. And so I thought you need to set expectations high. 
You need to have gotcha moments. You need to say, I'm going to give you a Perry Mason show. Put aside, as Pramila says, all of us are in public life. We occasionally utter a sentence that we regret. Put the stray sentences aside. They met the buildup yesterday. I was nervous about it. That's number one. It was beyond a prosecutor's burden, number one. Number two, Bill Barr was opposed to us when the congresswoman and I did Mueller. He came out and he lied. Don't take my word for it. Two federal judges have said so. He lied about the Mueller report. He drew some of the sting. So when it finally landed, it was a bombshell, but he had already spun us for almost two months. Barr was on our side. He was on the side of justice last night. That is an enormous difference. Number three, we did not have, because of the corruption of the GOP on the Judiciary Committee and in general, we did not have a voice like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger for the true bipartisan balance you had. And that meant so much in delivering the body blows last night. So I think the differences here were salient. And they learned from the failures. Pramila, we were in a tiny yeah. majority when we yeah. started out with the impeachment at the beginning of the year. It was spring training with Mueller. Yeah. We learned the first impeachment was good. The second impeachment was better. And now they've really, really learned those lessons in these Watergate hearings for the TikTok era. They got to be short. They got to be punchy. There's one other big difference that you just reminded me of, Norm, and that is that in the Watergate hearings and in the 9-11 commission, you had a select committee or a hearing committee that was sort of all focused on the same goal. And during the Mueller hearings and the first impeachment trial, it was extremely partisan and split. And last night, because it was Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger putting country above party and Working as a committee, you didn't have the constant interruptions to try to divert attention to a different issue that we face all the time, frankly, on Judiciary Committee, but that you hope doesn't happen in these big national moments when something enormous like democracy or our Constitution is at stake. And so I think that was also another big difference with last night. Yeah, query whether McCarthy is now ruining his decision not to play ball. All this strikes me as really dead on. A couple follow-on points. First, I do want to say, in addition to the differences you've noted, Norm, it's just it was much more dynamic and live, the difference between Mueller being a lawyer and a dry one at that. And here are people and the dynamics of a presentation and switching and live witnesses. And second, I do want to say, however high the expectations were set, I totally agree they met them 100%. And then finally, in terms of new bombshells, look, I think the big work they did last night, I'm just picking up on the congresswoman's point about how much more closely we're falling. For a lot of people, they had known about January 6th, and I think this did recreate the sort of hellishness of the whole day, but they hadn't really heard the through line going from just after the election to January 6th. That's become old hat for us now, and that's where the committee is going. But that really was important new information to reasonable people who aren't spending all their days and nights, as in Laura's case, who gets up at three in the morning to deliver the news about all this stuff. I think we should ask this at one point. Now's as good as any. So a few references to, ah, quibbles, I would have done different. 
Where, if anywhere, did you think the presentations lagged? Well, I thought that the part with the documentarian, the footage was very powerful. The through line was a little bit difficult for me to follow in terms Mm -hmm. of what we were trying to get from that point. And I think the purpose was to say he was embedded. He saw this as a conspiracy. It was a planned event. I think that could have been a little stronger myself. And then they utilized the screen very well behind them for some of the big video presentations. It might have been useful to have some sort of a pictorial depiction of even the seven steps because you're taking in so much information and certainly we know a lot of it. Imagine somebody who really doesn't know a lot of it. I think that might have been useful. Again, these are quibbles, but every time Liz Cheney moved to a, a, the next part of the seven-part print, you would have seen it pop up and it would have cemented in your mind, okay, these are all connected things. This was all part of the conspiracy as it unfolded. Those are the two things I can think of now. Laura or Norm? I thought the first 10 minutes, well, good, Pramila, they're more like the kind of thing we do with the -the run-of-the-mill congressional important hearings. That was not what people were tuning in for. Pursuant to Rule 5G1. We it's not just that. It's, there's a certain way. The chairman then, when he got into the evidence, was powerful when he broke right. away from the typical rule book. His story is important, but I would have moved that back and gotten right into the heart of it. Yes. You know, as a trial lawyer, particularly as a defense lawyer, when the odds are against you, I would have gone right in there and said, this is how I address a jury. And This case is about the most dangerous big lie in American history and holding the man responsible for it accountable. And then it was that slogan, the congresswoman and I, we had our slogan, we worked it out together. Do you remember what it was, congresswoman? We said it over and over. Trust me and I'm going to fail the test. Don't put her on the spot. (laughs) <laughs> no one is above the law. No one is above oh, the law. You guys law. made that up. I never realized that. I knew that <laughs> we, came from somewhere. It wasn't original. <laughs> it wasn't original, but we hammered it. Yeah. So I give an A grade. Okay. I think they yeah. hit all the marks I laid out in the Times. The only other quibble I would have is I would have liked more about, they talked about it, but the current danger because the big lie is driving from coast to coast hundreds of candidates or bills, some of whom are making it through the preliminary processes, whether it's enactment of the bills or these candidates getting through the primary process, who are election deniers. And that is the third chapter or the eighth chapter of that seven-part test. And a lot of it is nakedly racist. It's a new Jim Crow. And I would have talked more about that ongoing third chapter. But those are quibbles. And they did reference it. You had actually put it out in advance, Norm, and it has to be part of what's coming up, I think. Laura, no asterisk to your A+. So I did not give an A+. I'm (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I was agreeing with her. It was A, not A+. (laughs) Let's just let the record reflect. I'm abstaining from voting. Far be it for me to judge that. You know, from my perspective... I still want to know the essential link. And I believe that they may get there because they've told us that. And so I want to take them at their word. If they're saying they're going to get there, they're going to get there. But I think on night one, I need to hear the essential link Mm -hmm. between the White House 
and what happens that day, not in an inaction way, not in a, he just sat back and he was so happy to watch TV yeah. way. I need to drill down more on the Millie testimony that it ends up being Pence that actually calls in the National Guard, not the President of the United States, as, as you guys mentioned, because they were so worried about the optics of that. That's fascinating in itself. But that Pence is the one who's saying, you have to put this down. We have to bring the situation to an end. That, to me, starts to then blend into not just inaction. And there's more of that, I think, that that could be teased out in a really powerful way to show it was more than just sitting off the dining room, watching TV, enjoying the show. And again, they have some time here, but I do believe there are some people who will have only, for better or for worse, watched day one. And I wonder where they're left last night. It's a great point, and we're going to talk more about it coming up. Just to offer my two cents, I agree a lot with what Norm said about the first 10 minutes. Also, the testimony should have been much more closely scripted, quicker. As soon as the hearing was over and you looked at panoramically, every box had been checked, I agree. And I'm for not making them have ridiculous goals and expectations and for having the responsibility be on our shoulders. I want to offer just a a slightly different point, which is, We have in our family, unfortunately, a lot of Trump supporters. I mean, people who believe in the big lie. And I was thinking about what would bring people. I say this because I know there are some of them that might come with us and listen to this and some that really wouldn't. So I'm thinking about the ones that might. And I think that it's a little bit like when you pick up a novel, do you go to the last page first to see who did it? Or do you let the story build? And there was something, and I don't know if it's his voice, I have to say, something very comforting to me about the way that Benny Thompson started, because I think what he was trying to do, and I I actually think it succeeded. I, I might have changed a little bit in there to add some of what you all are talking about, but he was putting it in the context of what has happened in other great moments of crisis in our country's democracy. And I think that was important because part of what he was trying to say is this is how people responded, even people that you may or may not have agreed with on the political spectrum, but you now consider as a great president because of what he did in that moment. And I think that was actually important because, and I say this also having talked to a lot of Republicans, we have this tendency to go right for the jugular, right in, right immediately. This is what we believe. And there's a little bit of reeling in that we have to do, a little bit of softness that can sometimes be useful to getting people who don't agree with us so that they're not immediately put on the defensive. I I don't know if that completely answers the legitimate points you all are raising, but I do think it's something for us to think about. Why not start with Liz Cheney then saying, as a Republican, here are my values as a Republican. Yeah. It always matters out of whose mouth these things come, like with Barr. Well, obviously, I mean, you, you know, Norm, there's a chairman of the committee and the chairman. Do I ever? Uh, you know exactly <laughs> what that is. I will say, I think, I think Benny Thompson's speech was much, significantly shorter than Liz Cheney's. Liz Cheney was definitely the star of the show last night, and I, I give credit to the chairman for not staying in the same the same thing, the same way we always do it. I wanted to pay a compliment. Again, I give the hearings an A grade. I set high expectations. The first hearing exceeded them. And I think it set up continued expectation uh, meeting and exceeding over the month. 
the thing that struck me the most, even more than the chairman's generosity, and I really have to think about the congresswoman's point, maybe that softer intro, maybe it did serve that purpose. So I have to think about that. The other members didn't talk at all. Pramila, how rare is that? Well, you have the hearing format that we're, we're tied to, but there was also a political thing where people didn't want to give up their time. And anyway, this isn't about our hearing norm. This is about last night. <laughs> but last night was amazing in that regard because the members yielded yeah. to the chairman and to Liz Cheney. And frankly, almost everyone substantially yielded to Liz Cheney. That's an amazing moment in the history of Congress. It's time for our sidebar, which today will take up the topic, Can Judges Be Impeached? Many people have called for some kind of discipline or recusal, even up to impeachment for Justice Clarence Thomas, focusing chiefly on the seamy post-election activities of his wife, Ginny, who most recently we learned importuned dozens of legislators in Arizona to overturn the election result. So, can judges be impeached? And to explain it to us, I am thrilled to welcome the great, and I mean great, David Cross, one of the funniest people in America. He is an Emmy Award winner and two-time Grammy Award winner. You may know him as Dr. Tobias Funke in Arrested Development or as the star of the hilarious, the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret. He's also been in many films, including Kill Your Darlings, It's a Disaster, Year One, Men in Black, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Pitch Perfect 2, and several animated films. Okay, I give you David Cross on Can Judges Be Impeached? Recently revealed text messages show that Ginny Thomas, who is married to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to reject the 2020 election and install Trump to power. Notably, her husband sat on a case considering whether to shield January 6th White House documents from review. There, he was the lone vote against giving investigators access to these documents. To the extent that case or future cases involve shielding his wife, Justice Thomas may have violated judicial conflict of interest principles. In light of these events, many court observers have opined that Congress should launch an impeachment inquiry of Justice Thomas. But can Supreme Court justices be impeached? And if so, for what? Well, the first question is easy. Yes, federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, can and have been impeached. As Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story explained in his 19th century commentaries on the Constitution, all officers of the United States, whether executive or judicial, with the exception of officers in the Army and Navy, are liable to impeachment. Indeed, in 1804, Justice Samuel Chase, a George Washington appointee, was impeached, but acquitted for arbitrary and improper rulings. Most impeachments in U.S. history have been of federal judges. The most recent was in 2010 when U.S. District Court Judge Thomas Porches of the Eastern District of Louisiana was impeached for bribery and jury. And jury? That's silly. It was bribery and perjury. The second question is more complicated. In 1970, as House Minority Leader Gerald Ford instituted impeachment hearings against Roosevelt appointee Justice William Douglas. 
Ford attacked Douglas's liberal political leanings and, notably, accused him of conflicts of interest. Ford asserted that the standard for impeachment of judges should be lower than that for presidents and executive officers. He argued that because the Constitution specifies that judges shall hold their offices during good behavior, any conduct falling below good behavior warranted impeachment. The House committee, considering the matter, declined to embrace the good behavior theory. It noted, though, that impeachment of judges was warranted in cases of serious non-criminal dereliction of duty, including, for example, drunkenness or bias. It also, tellingly, suggested that violation of the federal judicial recusal statute, even by a Supreme Court justice, would warrant impeachment. While it is not clear that Justice Thomas's actions violated the recusal statute or broader conflict of interest principles, or that impeachment is warranted, there is no doubt that the Constitution and historical precedent support Congress's investigation into the matter. For Talking Feds, I'm David Cross. Thank you very much, David Cross. His stand-up is laugh out loud, spit out your drink, pee in your pants funny, and if you've never seen it, you should remedy that right away. Check out David's new special, David Cross, I'm From the Future, which is hilarious, as is all his stand-up. You can rent it from David's website, officialdavidcross.com. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate comes with a bit of a twist as we look to the very top of the wine bottle and ask which is better, cork or screw top? At face value, people think screw top equals cheap wine, which, as it turns out, isn't exactly true. The reason for screw tops is to ensure the wine tastes as the winemaker intended. Cork, which has been used to seal wine bottles for over 100 years, is a proven way to age wine effectively by allowing minute amounts of air to come in contact with the wine. This slowly develops a softer texture and enhances flavor. Now cork, traditional as it is, has a downside called TCA, which causes something called cork taint. Now, cork taint, while affecting a very small percentage of wines, can be a big disappointment, causing a musty aroma similar to the smell of wet cardboard and contaminating a great bottle of wine. We turn back again to screw caps, which are cork taint-proof, of course, not to mention much easier to open, especially in a kitchen surrounded by witnesses. How the aging process affects wines with a screw cap is yet to be known, as wineries continue to test. Whether it's a cork or screw top, at Total Wine & More, our guides will help you find the perfect wine to match your taste. After all, it's not just about what's on top of the bottle, it's what's inside that counts. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Can I go back to something about the evidence that has always struck me, and I'd be interested in the other's thoughts on this. Since the very beginning of this thing, the reporting has suggested that on the one hand, the former president promoted, facilitated, pushed a lie with the understanding that he knew it was a lie. 
There has been another thread that suggests he was almost like buying into his own Kool-Aid at times and couldn't really process the fact that he lost. At some point, I think there needs to be clarity about which one of those threads is actually what's happening because I think it has legal implications for his intent here. And it, they sort of got to it last night and they've made it dead clear that everybody around him knew it was a lie and told him it was a lie on more than one occasion. And everybody else knew what was going on here, even if he outwardly was still pushing one narrative. At some point, we need to get to the bottom of what he actually believed to the best that history can reveal. And maybe it, it will never be possible because it's always hard to flesh out intent. But I just think that that's a point that sometimes gets slippery, even in the reporting that's out there about how much he's buying into his own narrative versus him knowing exactly what happened, but him just selling a different point to the audience. I guess the question is, if everyone around you, including the people that you hire, tell you that what you believe is not true, and you refuse to listen to them, and in fact, you fire them and try to get another group of people in that'll tell you what you want to hear, does it even matter? Because at that point, that is the intent. You are intent on staying in power, regardless of anything that anybody tells you. If your daughter, your White House counsel, your attorney general, then in my mind, you're not fit to be president. If you can't listen to the people around you that are telling you that something is a lie, that to me is the intent to lie. Well, his fitness, I think, is gets pulled out of that right. There's a whole host of other ways that you could evaluate that and the, the voters would evaluate his fitness. But the question of his genuine faith belief that he was wronged and didn't actually lose and his genuine faith belief that there was something fishy going on. And again, I'm not saying that that was his genuine faith belief, but there are times where the reporting on this gets a little bit murky, I think. And I think that there needs to be more in the next couple hearings to flush out exactly how on notice he was and how much he understood he had lost. I totally agree it matters for his fitness as a legal matter even if it were right that he had the, let's call it the Kool-Aid view, some of the putative crimes would still be no less criminal. You, you still, even if you have that view, can't impair the a congressional proceeding. You can go to court. Second, there is the concept in law of willful blindness. Third, I do think that the committee is going for saying, come on, of course he knew. And then fourth, the best piece of evidence out there that he did, we're not going to, well, we might get secondhand, right? It's McCarthy telling his folks, Trump told me he knew he was at fault here. And it's a tangible indication of one of the big differences between here and Watergate, which is this whole cadre, half the Congress, not only not playing ball, but standing on the sidelines, throwing eggs at the uh, participants. People forget that the Republican cooperation in Watergate didn't happen all at once. When Howard Baker posed yeah. his famous question, what did he know and when did he know it? It was done with skepticism. I wanted to make two points. This is a man who lied over 30,000 times, according to the Washington Post. The reason that evidence that the chairman presented last night, and this was, I thought, the strongest part of the presentation, and Liz Cheney was very good on this too, so I give them both credit. 
They presented damning evidence out of the lips of Bill Barr, Trump's own daughter, Jason Miller, the other campaign aides. This was not new evidence. They used a Mike Pence speech, all presented by Liz Cheney. So if you just saw the lineup of names, you would have thought it was the Republican National Convention. And they all offered proof, evidence that Trump lied. The McCarthy thing that the congresswoman's colleague, Jamie Butler Herrera, I think is the source of that very important conversation. There's a way, Harry, as you know, to get that into evidence. We won't do that right now. (laughs) So that's point number one, Laura. He lied. And I know this thing, like, is he a, uh, you know, wicked idiot uh, or a crazy man in sanity defense? No, he lied. He knew. Point number two, to Harry's point, and Liz Cheney was effective here as well. It doesn't matter what he believed, because if you think you're the victim of a fraud, and she talked about this evidence, the January 2nd evidence, you're not allowed to take justice into your own hands any more than with any other crime and say, well, I want you to just find 11,780 votes that do not exist. You can't fight fraud with fraud, as he did with Brad Raffensperger. He minimized when they tried to talk to him. There's proof on that tape. He didn't want to hear the evidence because he was embarked on a fraudulent mission. I think by the time we get to the end of these hearings, our prosecutor, our DA, Liz Cheney, will have gotten us to proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump, probably on the Georgia charges, that's why I was so glad to see January 2nd. It's the other most important day the conversation with Raffensperger. And I think we're going to meet Raffensperger. And I think he could well be the John Dean of these TikTok era Watergate hearings. So let's now get down to both the focus of the committee potentially on DOJ, but more on the law and the very important, maybe ultimate legal question anyway, that Laura is raising. I actually think They gave us a preview of all they're going to have. It'll matter to have the testimony of it. It'll matter to have Raffensperger. It'll matter to have the White House counsel, et cetera. And I will also add, by the way, I agree, Norm, that January 2nd comes to great importance, but so does December 19th. And they're trying to do a linchpin of a tweet where he's saying, come on, and it's going to be wild. But I think they chose their words very carefully. And here's the core of what the committee and Liz Cheney said. Donald Trump summoned the mob. He assembled the mob and he lit the flame of this attack. Those are all kind of subjective, colorful words. I think that's where they are. Is that enough? if that's where they wind up, to hang a criminal charge around Trump's neck. I just want to repeat it again. Summon the mob, assemble the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. That's what they promised. I think they will deliver. Where does that put us, though, and put Trump with respect to the Department of Justice and possible criminal charges? I think there's a lot of daylight there for the the attorney general. And I don't think that this is an attorney general, at least that we have seen so far, that is interested in going out on a limb about the former president of the United States. I don't think he would bring a case unless he thought it was airtight. I think the fact that they're not prosecuting Meadows and Scavino speaks a lot to where their head is at on some of this stuff, even though they are vastly different issues in a vastly different frame of mind 
for a long time, Harry, you've been talking about those OLC memos and people told you, ah, there's a way around it. Turns out DOJ doesn't think there's a way around it, at least in those specific cases. And again, th this is different. There are historical implications here. We don't have all the evidence that DOJ has. I think the Georgia case, if we're really getting down to where his most exposure is, to me, objectively, should be a scarier case for him than this. Well, Harry, if I agreed with you that that was the gravamen of the case, I would agree with you and with Laura about the federal challenge. I do by the way, also think that the Georgia case is far scarier. The thing I love about the Georgia case is its potential simplicity. The audio tape, the audio tape, the audio tape. When do you get the smoking gun like that? Never, right? never, I mean, never. We've tried so many cases, yeah. Harry, on opposite <laughs> sides often. Yeah. That's my nightmare as a 30-year defense lawyer. But here's why I think I'm, I'm more cautiously optimistic. I don't think a federal prosecution is virtually certain, as I do believe for Georgia. But what you describe is just two steps of the seven-part conspiracy that they laid out. I had a funny colloquy with Ellie Honig on CNN last night. He kindly described me on Twitter as everybody's funny uncle. That's the relationship I have with Ellie. And we tease each other. But he said it was not slogany enough. You know, I offered an idea for the slogan. I think Pramila made a suggestion. They do need a simple slogan, but they can't lose the complexity of the conspiracy. And this was a seven-part conspiracy. And summoning and assembling and directing the mob was only one of the seven stages. So if you put that together and you put the inaction together with the other five steps, and Laura, whatever context, Trump's circle, whatever that means, right? That could be a very broad term. When you put it into that larger structure, which you have to make simple for the jury of the American people and the eventual criminal juries, then that one out of seven steps is very salient together with the other six steps. And I'm somewhere between you two, Look, I don't think it should be their job to stitch up a criminal case and it would be mistaken and prudent to try to give that goal. Nevertheless, I do think this is what they're going to mainly show about him. And while I do agree with Laura, there's daylight on a basic conspiracy theory. I think it's very strong evidence of aiding and abetting, which we lawyers know is the same as doing the real deal the actual obstruction of the mm. proceeding itself, and that's a serious enough charge. All right, we're gunning very close to out of time. Norm, I'll ask you this because your thumb's on the pulse a lot. By now, the second hearing has actually happened. We're taping on Friday. It happens on Monday. What are you looking for in the second hearing? Obviously, the second hearing is going to now start taking us through the seven steps of the conspiracy. I do think we'll find that they broke through. I do think we're going to find just by numbers, but also the impact and the subjective feel I had that the first hearing was something special and different. But Harry, you know, we've all done this many times. You have your dynamic opening and then you got to start putting the witnesses on. And we got a little taste of that. I thought the witnesses were great. By the way, I don't want the witnesses to be too razzle dazzle. And you can only control a witness so much. It looks phony. 
So I thought the witnesses were good. But then you really get into the kind of Sherman's march Mm -hmm. of any trial. And you're just putting on your evidence and you're marching through. And that's what we're going to get on Monday at 10 a.m. is daytime TV. Daytime TV is different than primetime TV. (laughs) And, you know, now you build the foundation. It will be more traditional. We'll hear from all the members. They'll all get their chance to question. But laying the foundation is important. So I'm somewhat of a connoisseur of these matters. I'm looking forward to it. But I think they have the jury's attention. Now let's see what they do with it. All right. And very good. And it's different in this way, too. I mean, this was designed last night for people to watch 90 Minutes, and they did. The 10 a.m. is about, I think, highlight clips in the evenings in large part. No pratfalls, no belly flops on the one hand, but a few real incandescent moments. All right. We got a minute left for our Talking Five. And keeping with our theme of the hearing all the time, the question is, what was your personal favorite moment from the hearing last night? Congresswoman, could I start with you? My personal favorite moment was seeing Bill Barr testify that this was a a bullshit theory, to use his words. And um, given my experiences with Bill Barr, that was a lovely thing to see, but most importantly, very important for the hearing. I, too, agree with the congresswoman that just the optics of having former A.G. Barr be the mouthpiece, I think the first mouthpiece of deposition testimony that was used, it was striking, given his position vis-a-vis this whole project, given his position vis-a-vis Trump, who he is institutionally within the party. It's fascinating to have him on camera call bullshit. I have to agree with my colleagues. Laura has her own deep experience as a lawyer. She's hit the nail on the head. The same with the Congresswoman. Certainly having Bill Barr telling the truth and turning on his patron, but the one-two punch of Barr and all those other Trump allies and family members and Liz Cheney. I mean, Barr and Cheney may be two of the most conservative Republicans in the land, And to have them turn on Trump with all the others, wow. Wow. And imagine Ivanka, the steam coming out of uh, his ears when that came on. All right, I have a different uh, favorite moment. I don't think I can do it in five words or fewer. And it was a little bit of a cheap shot, but it was so well done. The video of the melee juxtaposed with Trump. All of a sudden, we have his voice out of nowhere saying, all the love in the air, I've never seen anything like We are out of time in this single-issue episode. Thank you very much to Norm, Laura, and Congresswoman Jayapal. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we've posted a conversation with Rachel Neuer, 
about the very promising possibility of MDMA-assisted therapy to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Ria Cohn Gilbert, Kalenitano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the multi-talented David Cross for explaining if and when judges can be impeached. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. Talk to you later. <laughs>